Welcome to Canada Homeschools, the dose of inspiration and encouragement for Canadian homeschoolers. Canada Homeschools features interviews with homeschool group organizers, resource suppliers, and conversations with everyday homeschoolers just like you, all from a Canadian perspective. I'm your host, Rowan Atkinson. I'd like to thank you for joining me. Now let's get started. <laughs> In 400 meters. In 100 meters. You have reached your destination. Well, hello. Today I'm having a conversation with Christy Knockleby, a homeschooler, author, and blogger from Northern Ontario. And Christy blogs at housefulofchaos.com about homeschooling, and she describes herself as a bookworm. I'm going to have to say, me too. I love to read. Christy is not one to shy away from challenging subjects in her blog. And she offers book reviews, nature study ideas, and other resources. Christy, what can you add to that introduction? Tell us about your family and your homeschooling journey. And perhaps you could start with the fact that you were home educated for some of your journey. Well, I grew up in rural Alberta and I attended elementary school for six years, but I always felt a little strange. I was very academically oriented, very rules focused, and I tended to not get along with my classmates. They perceived my shyness and awkwardness as pride and rudeness. And it, the time in school was just very damaging. So my two closest friends were homeschooled right from the beginning. And so from a young age, I started asking my parents, can I homeschool too? And it wasn't until grade seven that my parents agreed to let me homeschool. And I had to do correspondence courses for the first three years. Then I moved to a sort of more blended program through a school board that gave more flexibility. So I went to university after that and loved university. And then I had my kids. And when my oldest was old enough for school, we just felt like he wasn't, we didn't think it was going to be a very good fit. We know now that he's profoundly gifted and autistic. Um, he didn't have diagnoses at the beginning, so at first we just thought this just wasn't, it didn't look like a good fit. And then his siblings came along and we homeschooled them too. And it was a lot of fun. It was, it, I mean, they're still homeschooling. At times it's overwhelming. I'm an introvert. My three kids are all talkers, so I get overwhelmed very, very easily. But this is what we do. I'm just laughing for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I'm similar to you in that I'm I'm very academic and uh, book bookworm-ish, but. I'm the opposite. I'm an extrovert. So in school, people thought my enthusiasm and taking over the classroom was pride, just like they thought your reticence was pride. <laughs> and I got bullied 
And uh, so I'm resonating kind of with that. And, uh, and I was homeschooled some of the time as well, um, not all of it. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. We didn't have uh, correspondence courses. I had to use just hand-me-down outdated textbooks from the school board, basically. But uh, it worked. <laughs> it worked. It was fine. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from your blog and, and so what you've been sharing, you homeschooled for several years. And then, as you said, it is overwhelming. It's all consuming. And so you decided to send your children to school in 2016. I'm going to quote you to you for a moment. Um, because I think the questions that you were wrestling with will resonate with our listeners, whether they're ever considering sending their kids to school or not. And I think if we're honest, we all do consider it <laughs> from time to time, depending how the day is going. And we try not to threat, use it as a threat. But um, if I had used it as a threat with mine, they would have said, okay. <laughs> so I didn't. Um, yeah, so could you share a little bit about that once I read this quote? This quote is from Preparing Myself to Send My Children to School, and that's your blog post from 2016. I have for years gone back and forth with that hesitant question of whether or not I'm really doing enough homeschooling. Am I doing a good enough job? Would the kids be better off in school where they could both meet more people and have more independence? Finally, we've decided to put it to the test. We will send them to school and see how it goes. My husband assures me this is a win-win thing. Either school goes well or we will know that homeschooling is the right option. What I fear most, and this is, and this is what really resonated with me, what I fear most is the middle ground, the area where I could be stuck unsure whether the hardship they encounter will be character building and good for them, but wondering too if it's unnecessary. I want certainty. I crave certainty. There is no certainty. I know that. I take deep breaths. I lure the kids outside with sword fights and to sit in the shade reading. I try to savor these days. So can you share your thoughts with us on the uncertainty that homeschooling parents wrestle with? I feel like it's that lack of empirical proof or professional approval that we're doing a good job? Yeah. So I know that some people turn to survey results that say that homeschoolers do a, a much better job than kids in school. But a lot of those surveys were done where it was voluntary reporting by people who were successful at homeschooling. And it doesn't include all of the people who homeschooled for a while and then went to school and it doesn't include those who had a bad experience. So I take all of those studies with a lot of salt. I, I don't take them too seriously. And so there isn't, there aren't guarantees. I don't know. Um, for me, it was also tied up with this feeling that as a homeschooling mother, I didn't have another job. And was I homeschooling them because it gave me a sense of purpose? Was I homeschooling them because homeschooling was all I knew? Because I was scared of the school system from my experience? So I wondered how much I was doing it just out of trying to meet my own needs versus theirs. 
And so I put them in school and well, <laughs> my middle child survived a year in school. My oldest survived a month. My youngest went for about four months and then came home and then went back to school the next year where she completed a year in school. Um, and that was enough to assure us that it's okay for them to be at home. They're learning more at home than they would be at school and that they're happier at home than they were at school. So that answered those questions for us. And you used a word to describe their experience, which is they survived. <laughs> yes, they survived. So as a homeschooler, it's tempting to think of school as this wonderful experience for them. A lot of us know that it would be a hard or had our own bad experiences, but there's still this temptation to think that if they were in school, it would somehow be better for them. At least on my part. And then I sent them to school and it was frustrating for them. It was frustrating. My middle child had done grade three at home, but because of when his birthday was, they put him in a grade three again, and they put him in a grade three, two split. So he was with kids who were almost two years younger than him. And he spent most of that year where he had to read to the other kids who couldn't read. So he was going in there with adult science books to read in his free time. And then during the assignments, they would pair them up and he would have to teach this other kid. And at first he was excited about this because, hey, it shows how smart and bright he is and they're listening to him and it's good. And over the time, his enthusiasm just stalled. And he went, he sort of withdrew from his classmates. He got into more arguments. He didn't enjoy it. And he wasn't learning anything. The main assignment he kept on saying they would do would be read something and then say what you learned from it. And he'd say, well, it was a good thing I was paired and working with another kid because they could tell me what they learned because this was all review. It just, it didn't work. My, my youngest had trouble with, she had a substitute come in after part of the year. So they switched from doing phonics to doing whole word partway through her grade one year. And that confused her. My oldest, oh, um, it was just one thing after another. And he actually, he wanted to go back for high school too. So he went back another time. He went back for about three weeks last year. And three weeks was enough. Um, at the high school he went back to last year, they were supposed to bring their own computers, their laptops. We didn't know this ahead of time. They had Wi-Fi that they were supposed to be able to answer questions when the teacher asked questions. They were supposed to answer online in a message board, but half the time the Wi-Fi would give out, so only those kids with cell phones could answer the teacher's questions. And we're not buying our kids cell phones so that he can do school. So it was I one crazy thing after another. It sounds like it. I want to go on record as saying that I'm glad we have the option of public education in Canada because I would not want education to be only for the wealthy. Um, I'm glad that no matter what your socioeconomic level is, you can still have access to an education. That being said, it sounds like they encountered a lot of, um, a lot of issues that are issues with state education, which is they are 
counting how many hours their bums are in the seats and it's not based on mastery. Um, they would, if someone didn't pass and didn't master the material, they would pass them anyway. And it sounds like yours were, had already mastered the material and they, of course, got held back because it was based on their birth date, which is an arbitrary thing. And um, that happened to my dad, actually. He was so smart in kindergarten that he skipped grades one, kindergarten grade one and two because my grandmother had already taught him to read and write before he started school. And then that was in England. And then when he moved to Canada, so he was already doing like British grade 11 and they put him into grades, Canadian grade six. And so he ended up quitting school because it was just too boring. And he ended up um, going to college as a mature student because he was just way, way advanced, like for where, where they were at. And they just simply based it on their ages. So there's a few issues with group education yeah. and, and I think that's one of them. I, I really wish they, we had more funding for public schools because I too really support the idea of public schools. And I think that part of it is a funding thing. When my son went into the high school class, the first day they had eight more kids in the classroom than they had seats. And so the teacher was just overwhelmed. And I think that makes it even harder for the teachers that are trying their best. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, but as much as I want to support public education, I won't sacrifice my kids to it right now. Exactly, exactly. And then that becomes a cycle because the money that a school gets is based on the number of kids that are enrolled. So... It kind of goes around and round, but at the same time, as you said, we're responsible for our own children. We're not responsible for everyone's children. So, so Christy, in sending your children to school, other than the surprises that you already um, mentioned, you had some surprises and faced some challenges and unexpected things that you had to deal with. And I think a lot of these things were things that were dealing with a system instead of dealing as an individual uh, family, and also um, things you had to deal with in your own head too. So can you share, and I do want to thank you for being so transparent, because there are people listening who have been there, and maybe you can put their experiences into words and maybe help them feel understood. Well, one of the things that was very scary for me, putting the kids in school, was this sense of, am I being judged for everything? If, the, if a child was behind on one topic, is this a reflection that I failed them homeschooling? If my child prefers to be on their own at recess and not playing with other kids, then you know, I had conversations about the, with the principal about that. Does this mean I failed socializing them? Um, and no, I haven't. They just like to be on their own. But there was all sorts of you know, insecurities that way. Um, sending them out into the world and letting them interact more and then wondering, should I have done this more earlier? But, you know, what's done is done and they're great kids. And, and we don't know how much well, that was is, part of it. yeah, we don't know how much is personality, how much is parenting, how much is homeschooling. Like, 
But for us as homeschool moms, it all blurs together. Like the responsibility of every single thing has been on our shoulders. Most of the parenting, all of the education, all of the socializing, everything. So we don't know where one aspect, like we can't blame it on the school <laughs> because it's all on us. And so exactly. <laughs> it's a lot that we carry. I know um, I have my son in a private high school right now, and uh, I don't like to go to the parent-teacher interviews, even though uh, he is an A student and everyone loves him and he gets character awards. I still don't want to go because I still feel like I'm being evaluated. <laughs> and I know how he's doing academically, yeah. so why do I even need to go? <laughs> That's what I tell myself. Some part, though, it is a job that we have to do to separate ourselves, to acknowledge the kids are their own self, their own yes. people. And yes. that, you know, they have to take some responsibility for things themselves. We don't control everything. We don't shape everything about them, even if we're scared that we do. Yes. And I think as homeschool moms, and we're prone to being helicopter moms and to enmeshment, which is we don't know where we end and they begin and vice versa. So it's something that we really have to guard. Yeah. So overall, it was good that they went for that little bit of time. It's great they're at home again. And so now my oldest is trying a sort of distance program that's more correspondence-like, and he's doing well with that. I like that because he has the benefits of being with those he loves and trusts, but you still don't have to do all of the educating. So it sounds like a win to me. Yes. It also gives me a really close up chance to see what they teach in school and to recognize the arbitrariness of some of it. That, okay, they choose to teach this, but this really isn't all that much more important than that other thing I taught that isn't on the curriculum. Like. Yes, and, um, and I think even because of COVID, a lot of parents are starting to really discover what exactly it is that their children are being taught. And these curricula have been developed by, you know, groups over time. And, um, and yeah, who's to say? For me, for my kids, I felt it was very important that they all take economics, but that's not a mandatory credit at all in the public system, even though it affects our entire, you know, how we vote and how we manage money and how we even see like the whole economy in the world. But, you know, it's not deemed important. History is not deemed yeah. to be important. So um, it, you're right. It is a little arbitrary and I'm a little biased, but... <laughs> After my oldest tried three weeks of school last year, he was home again. And then it wasn't until this year we realized that there is this available provincially funded correspondence course he could do. So he's jumping into grade 10 there and I'm working to get him the credit for grade nine courses. But that involves me writing down everything he did last year. And figuring out exactly where that fits into the curriculum requirements. And so that becomes an interesting thing of seeing and thinking, okay, we did a lot of things that don't fit anywhere on that list. And what things do we, did we do that do fit? 
And most of it, you know, we've covered and we did do a couple extra assignments the last few weeks just to make up for things we missed. But it's been interesting. Yes, indeed. So I, um, I actually homeschooled my three girls till the end of grade 11. And then we decided that it would be best for them to go to grade 12 as a transitional year and to get their proper diploma so that they could get into their post-secondary like one her post-secondary option was she could have her grade 12 diploma or she could write a giant sat test but she has test anxiety so we didn't want her whole entrance riding on one test when she's brilliant she's just scared at tests so um so we did that so i've had to have the whole guidance appointment thing and sort of prove all their credits and so on and so forth and so I do plan to have a podcast episode coming up called The Dreaded Guidance Appointment and just share a little bit about that <laughs> process and, um, and give some tips and ideas. Yeah. And I, I just uh, walked my friend through it because she was sending her daughter to the same uh, school that my, my uh, son goes to and uh, into grade 11. And so I helped her sit down and try to figure out like what categories, all the learning. They've done amazing learning, but it just didn't fit into the boxes very well. So we found a way to make it fit. Yeah. 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 That's a process. And then even to know what few things you have to add to fill in any gaps and yeah, and sometimes they don't care about those gaps either. Like there are certain things, math and English, they really super care about. They don't necessarily care about their French credit, even though it's an Ontario requirement. So it just depends. I found differences between a private school and the public school. The public school was actually way more relaxed than the private school was because I think the private school was worried because it was going to be checked up on. They wanted to really err on the side of caution, whereas the public school, they're like, yes, we get the funding for your child, or <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe they were just more accommodating, but yeah, it does vary. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you um, experienced was that you didn't expect to have to confront all the myths and challenges about homeschooling again when you did pull your kids out and then you put and like you probably got applause for putting them in and then when you pulled them back out you actually had to face even though you had been a homeschooler for years you had to face all of those challenges from people could you share about that yeah so I took them out sort of one at a time because it was a month in that the oldest, we knew it was not working. So we pulled him out and the other two were both in still. And then a few months later, we pulled the youngest child out. And I mean, the school didn't give us any problem about it. There wasn't any concern that I wasn't gonna be educating them or something. But there were some comments from family and friends and the sort of question of, okay, are they a school failure now? Is there something wrong with them that they can't complete a year in school? And it's like, no, there's something wrong with the system that is not going to accommodate children that do have special needs. Um, and so 
know, it's okay. It's with autism is an interesting thing because it is a spectrum. And because there's a place on that spectrum where people think, oh, the child seems normal enough. Why can't they just be normal? And it doesn't work that way. An autistic child that can, can blend in and mask themselves sometimes can still need more support. They can still need more patience from other people and more acceptance. And so we have to sort of adjust to that again and say, no, this is right. It isn't a matter of if you had more experience in school or if you just push through it or if you stay there long enough, you'll learn to adapt and be okay at school. It's okay to be a homeschooler and it's okay to not survive at school, to not enjoy school or thrive there. It's okay to be at home, to have a different path. So that was a bit of a challenge. And it was a challenge because my, my son was concerned about that. But I mean, he is amazing. He is just, he amazes me so often. You don't have to, con you don't have to convince me of that, that he's amazing. So I have a yeah. brother. Um, I'm not sure if he's been officially diagnosed because when we were young, it wasn't a thing. Like it was a thing, but no one knew what it was. And uh, my mom, who had had some experience working in learning resource, kept saying to the school, he has some kind of learning issue. There's a disconnection there. Like get him tested, get him tested. And they would just laugh at her because he could memorize anything. So he totally um, got 90s or whatever. And, you know, he could memorize every word. So, you know, it, his academics weren't suffering, but socially and even in his ability to have common sense and follow the protocols of the teacher and you know think like some life skill things not that he hadn't been taught but he just couldn't implement them and so it was rough and I really think that that's one reason why we all got pulled out um, when I was going into grade eight I love school but it but except for the bullying parts but the the academics I love but um it was it it was partly because of that and he is so smart and he's so great he's just more of a late bloomer you could say um but he's amazing and you know growing up I had to listen to the populations of every city in the world or the average wingspans of all the birds of prey in the world or every car that <laughs> was ever made <laughs> zero to 60 statistics, whatever. He's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but another thing you said, and I don't know if this will be just a value for someone, but you talked about the ability for an autistic person to kind of mask it and blend in with society. And I just had the thought that girls who have autism are often go undiagnosed because we're naturally more social we can blend in and all the tests that are made for autistic kids are usually designed for boys. Um, so it's not always as obvious um, with girls because they are able to blend in a little more socially, I guess, sometimes. It's a spectrum, so every single case is different. But for what it's worth out there, everyone listening. So I was that 
It's okay. <laughs> so I look back and I think I'm probably autistic. Like you said, they didn't use to diagnose it nearly as much. And the, the social problems I had growing up really suggest to me I'm probably autistic. And I, it wasn't until my son was diagnosed and even at first I didn't recognize it but sort of over the years, I've started to see more and more things where I think, oh, you know, I'm like that too. I have sensory issues too, and I have all these things that I think probably I should have been diagnosed with it, but they didn't. Yeah. You know, there's questions around diagnosing autism, whether or not it's diagnosed too frequently, whether it helps to have a diagnosis. It helps as far as, it helps my son as far as letting go of all of the sort of negative things people had dumped on him before, that his behavior had gotten disapproval from people. And then we know, okay, it's not because he doesn't try hard enough. It's not because he wants to do wrong. It is that he is wired differently. He thinks differently. He understands things differently. And it puts him just a little bit out of sync with the world. And so it helped to have that diagnosis. Yes, I agree say, with that. Okay. It's really changed my view. I used to not want to put labels on kids because I didn't want them to be limited by the label. But over the years, my view on that is changing because it, I think we know more about brain, uh, like how brains work uh, now too than we used to. And, um, and so if it's helpful to know how your brain works, like there's a whole book on organizing for people with ADHD because their brain works differently. And so some of the problems that happen are social problems can be because it's how your brain works differently. And so I have two brothers on the spectrum of my birth mother and a niece. I say, I don't have it, but then my friends laugh at me. <laughs> so I can relate with you a little bit. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's really neat to see how a conversation will go down a path that maybe we didn't plan, but it's a good one. And I'm sure it will encourage someone out there listening. Uh, let's shift gears now and talk about your work as an author. Now, to be clear, I haven't read your materials. I haven't used them. Uh, but I love to give Canadian homeschool writers a chance to share what they've been working on. And so can you tell us about your literature study? Okay, thank you. I wrote a secular Bible study. So way back before I had my kids, I went to university and I actually went to a theological college planning on becoming a minister. And that didn't happen. And since then, I've really questioned whether there is a God or not, but I still really love reading the Bible and studying it. When I think about the way I was taught to study the Bible at theological school, and it was using the historical critical method, where we view the Bible as a work of literature from a particular time period, and we try to understand the historical context and what messages are in it. And so I just find that so fun, and it's something that I enjoy sharing with others. So I was teaching online classes on it, and then I decided to write it up my notes on it as a book that is available for homeschoolers. It's sort of short lesson plans and activities. And I, mean, I can give an example of how I approach the Bible 
with the story of Jonah and how like a lot of people um, look at that story and it has Jonah had been sent as a missionary or um, sorry, not as a missionary. Jonah had been sent as a prophet to the city of Nineveh and he goes, has to run away, ends up on a boat, ends up being swallowed by a giant fish. But after he's back on land rescued, he goes to the people of Nineveh and he talks to them. And a lot of people, when they look at the story, they sort of get stuck with the whole miracle of the fish thing. And looking at it as a very well, interesting thing. So it seems he ran away because he didn't want God to forgive the people of Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians had been the big bad evil empire that had destroyed the kingdom of Israel. And so looking at the sort of historical context of where this story would have originated and questioning, you know, was it, did it come about before Assyria fell or did it come about did the story get written after the Babylonians were the big evil ones? And looking at what happens in the story, the text doesn't have the Assyrians convert. They do ask for forgiveness and it says put aside some evil ways, but it doesn't say convert. So I look at the Assyrian texts of that time period and we can see there's an Assyrian text in which they say one of the Assyrian kings, Sargon II, had been punished for not worshiping the Babylonian God properly. So the Assyrians had their own gods, but they also accepted the idea that they could be punished for, by a different God for not worshiping that God. And so to just see the stories in the light of their contemporaries, it's, it's fascinating to me. So that's what I write about and try to share. It is fascinating. And uh, I love history, obviously. So I'm right with you on some of that stuff. I just thought he was not thinking of others. Maybe he was thinking of himself, but obviously he had a reason. He doesn't want the people who have punished his community to be forgiven. He doesn't want the enemy spared. And so that in itself brings up all sorts of questions. You know, and in the Bible, when we look at the text later, there's questions about foreigners joining. Can people, can Assyrians, former Assyrians join and become part of the Jewish community or not? And so this was a thing that people wrestled with. I think still we still wrestle with, with it. Yes, I agree. I think people still wrestle with that. Mm -hmm. The whole concept of the Gentiles so, is uh, a theme throughout, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. So what age levels, or shall I say, development levels do you think that uh would most benefit from that is it more of a high school resource or a very super smart grade six i am absolutely lousy at judging age levels <laughs> yes because my own example is my kids who are weird so i can say that i teach online classes and i've gone through and i've told these stories to kids as young as nine or ten so I think an adult could take the book and work through it with a child that age. But if you're letting the child work through it themselves, it would probably need to be an older age. Um, that so makes probably sense. Probably high school level. Yeah. My headphone history is like that too. Like adults can get a lot out of it. I say it's from grades three to eight, but a grade one can color the pictures and just listen and get something out of it, but maybe yeah. not as much as a 12-year-old would get out of it. So it's kind of... 
there's not really a pinpointed age for it. And of course, after our earlier discussion, it wouldn't be right for us to uh, base their abilities on their ages anyway, would it? <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard. It is. I agree. And then you then you find yourself falling back on, okay, what does the provincial standards, what do they say in order to explain where your curriculum is supposed to be at? But our province most certainly does not have a course, as far as I know, on um, Bible as literature. So it's not there. So I can't even do it's that. The Bible doesn't fit its provincial standards. So. No. So it is something that a lot of people want to learn even so part of the goal for the book is to have it a resource that secular families can use if they want to teach their kids about the Bible so that they recognize when stories appear in literature and in art. A lot of Western paintings and literature are based on biblical stories. But it also has all this deep history that I think would be interesting to a person who is religious too, though it could be challenging for some. So it's definitely uh, something then it sounds like that no matter what your worldview, you could get something out of it. Unless your worldview is to take the Bible in a very literal manner, which like taking it outside of its historical context and thinking it all applies to today exactly, then it just might be just disturbing. Yes, like if you like to take a verse that is supposed to be applying to Israel and then you are acting like that specific verse is actually talking to me in a prophetic way today in this moment, say for example, then that you might get mad. <laughs> Maybe. Well, yeah, and people can still look at an old text and feel it prophetic. But I won't disguise the fact in this book that I believe that it was written about Israel. Or another example is there's a passage in the Bible that talks about Sargon II, that Assyrian king I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And he's called the Daybringer. And it talks about him trying to conquer the world and falling from heaven. And a lot of people look at that and they think it's talking about Lucifer because that's the language of falling from heaven that has developed in Christian mythos. But the original context is it's talking about Sargon who was trying to conquer the world and has just died unburied in a very um, embarrassing defeat. Yeah, it's, um, I don't think we should ignore the historical context whenever we're, <laughs> we're studying scripture. So, yeah, sounds good. I might get it now. We'll see. Can I just say one more thing on it? Yeah. So in it, I take the position that I'm not trying to find out information about if there is a God or who the God is or anything like that. I'm trying to understand what a specific group of ancient writers said. And so what people's modern religious beliefs or lack thereof is not the concern in the book. It's okay, that's a good way. That's a good way to say it. So, kind of a modern day Josephus <laughs> going back into the histor historical stuff and just calling it as the, he sees it. Okay, so you've been 
working on a new fiction book as well, Christy. It's called The Edge of the Circle, and it's set to launch any day now, November 24th, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes book launches can depend a lot on the mail. <laughs> I have found myself, but... Yes. Yeah. Um, so what is that book about? For still then. <laughs> yes. What, what is that about and what was your inspiration for writing it? Well, I came up with the main characters and the plot when I was a teenager. So the story has been rewritten at least three times since then. And I wanted the story to sort of capture some of the experience I had as a homeschooler of loneliness and of friendship and of exploring and learning more about the world. But I gave it a totally fictitious plot. I wanted to create a much more dramatic scenario to explain why the main character starts homeschooling. So that is all fiction and I invented the characters. It's not based too much on real life, but trying to incorporate some of the, the real questions I had as a teenager about how should I interact with others and, and some of the religious exploration that I did as a teenager. And then I went and in one of my rewrites, I decided that I would make at least one of the characters autistic, partly in honor of my son. I guess you can't give any spoilers, huh? I can mention, so the, the, plot, the plot is a teenage girl who has to testify at court. And her classmates reject her from that because of that. And so she starts homeschooling and she starts meeting some other people. But we're sort of on the fringes of society. It's in small town, Alberta. We're um, a fictitious town in small town, Alberta. And she ends up starting to explore Wicca or modern witchcraft. And I'm sure that's sort of going to be the part that scares most people. But it was a reflection. In doing so, she also ends up exploring a bit about what it meant growing up in the church and being Christian for her. So it's not a book attempting to convert anyone on anything, but just to explore what it's like being a teenager. That's a good, that's a good clarification. So that was really your inspiration was to explore some of the questioning and the things that you went through as a teenager and maybe open up those ideas or thoughts to teenage. Is it for teenagers? Yeah, it's a young adult novel. Yeah. I think so you said that, but yeah. Okay. Okay. So where will people be able to get your materials? I think they're going to be on, they're on Amazon. Is that correct? Or your website? I'm publishing through Ingram Sparks, which is a distributor that will make the books available. So right now on Indigo Chapters, the ebook is available for pre-order. The paper copy is available for pre-order on Amazon. And they'll both be available in both places soon. And then any other places where books are sold can order them in. Okay. So as an author too, how has your experience been with Ingram Spark so far? I haven't used it yet, but I'm kind of looking at it because I may want to do a hardcover book in the future. And right now with Amazon, you can't do a hardcover. So 
I really like Ingram Sparks. Um, I haven't had any problems with them. I mean, it's humbling to realize how weird the publishing system is. So books, to be able to get my book listed in bookstores, I have to say bookstores get 55% of the profits, which is just, or 55% of the list costs. So if the book is listed for $25, half of that goes to Amazon. And the other half has to pay for the actual printing of it, the shipping of it to Amazon, and a little bit left over to me. So I'm realizing how little authors earn on any of their books. Yes, I, um, I've realized I that too. <laughs> why a lot of, I can understand why a lot of people just go for eBooks on Kindle because then they can keep more of the list price. But I didn't want it to be just available through Amazon. I don't particularly like Amazon and I wanted it to be available elsewhere. Yes. And, uh, and so for me, that's one reason why I, ha I get big boxes of author copies of things and then I can make more profit uh, selling it from my website, even though I have to deal with shipping and all of that as well. I, I don't think I've sold many on Amazon, yeah. to be honest, but I've sold a few in person when we could be in person at events. And um, so it's a bit more profitable that way too. Do you, do you use, yeah, I haven't set up for doing that much yet. Do you use um, WooCommerce? I actually use SendOwl because a lot of my products are, digi are available digitally. And I just love their system. They print a monthly accounting report for me, so I don't have to keep track of that. They um, securely can deliver and automate all of my digital stuff. So if you were to say order headphone history, I guess it sounds like a shameless plug, but I'm just saying, if you were to order that in digital format, it would be delivered to you automatically. I wouldn't even have to do anything because it's all pre-programmed in. And so I pay a certain amount each month. And then if someone orders a physical copy, like a set of CDs or uh, the high school geography workbook that isn't available digitally, uh, I get an email in my inbox that says that physical goods have been ordered and what has been ordered and what address it is to be sent to. So it's really streamlined and it really helps keep me on top of things and minimizes what I have to do, um, So, which I need because I have another job, another day job and volunteering and all the other things I do. So, so I recommend it. Yeah. It just depends too on, um, you'll want to have enough sales to cover your monthly, <laughs> your monthly, um, you know, payment that you have to make. Huh. Yeah. But we can talk, we can email about that. So there, so if you're an author or a curriculum, yeah, if you're an author or a curriculum uh, publisher, you're just getting some good advice or some advice at no extra charge in this podcast. So there you go. Okay. Are you ready for the home stretch, Christy? Okay. What has been your worst homeschool moment? Probably the moments where I've threatened to send my kids to school, which is one of those things you should never, ever do because who knows, you might actually send them and then they think it's punishment. But I've done that. You're not alone. 
You're not alone. I've heard that one before. <laughs> and what has been your best homeschooling moment, if you can narrow it down to just one? I love those moments where my kids get so distracted on their projects. We don't have time to do the projects I had planned for them, but they're working together on doing something, whether it's building paper airplanes powered by balloons or mapping out an imaginary world and arguing about the laws and how physics would work in that world. That's amazing. Yeah, my kids soon learned that if they were writing songs and recording them with their audio equipment, etc., that I would just kind of throw the schedule out because I was happy that they were doing something that was educational and productive and creative. And um, it's really neat to see when they find their giftedness and they really go for it. And, and I think that that's a beautiful thing. If you could go back and do things differently in your homeschool, what would you change? Probably I would go back and would add a little bit more structure as far as written work for the kids to do in the morning, just to get them into that routine better. Okay, thanks for that. It was a fight. Yes, I am the opposite. I had too much structure and expectation, so I would relax things a little bit. But I'm older than you, and so I was in the kind of generation of like we were classically and just like over the top traditionally educating the kids and proving that we could do a good job to all of society. So <laughs> Whether our kids liked us at the end of the day or not is a different, different matter, but yeah. So, okay. So you would add a bit more structure in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Christy. And next podcast episode, we're going to be discussing Christy's teaching classes on some online platforms. So be sure to tune into that and happy homeschooling Canada. Thank you so much for listening. You can find helpful links and show notes for this episode at our website, canadahomeschools.com. Please share this podcast with your friends and leave a rating and positive review on your podcast provider. This will help others find their dose of inspiration and encouragement. Happy homeschooling, Canada! Hee <laughs> hee!